Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Brown, and welcome to the Millie Podcast. The more I talk with people, the more I'm hearing the same thing. We're all looking for more meaning and more substance. People want to get away from the scripted reality and get to the heart of each person's story. This podcast is for women who want to rip up the script and explore new ideas, places, and possibilities. Every two weeks, I'll be talking with an inspiring and inspired woman who is creating impact in her community. And more importantly, a woman who can teach us to be ourselves, go after our dreams, and write our own story. I can't wait to share this journey with you. It's time to see the world in a different way. Women feel that they have to be 100% qualified for the gig. I had a team, it was 50% women, reminded by my aunts as a child, having diverse people at the table will give you diverse results. This week, I spoke with Elena Christopoulos, scientist and political consultant who most recently has worked with public figures like Elizabeth Warren and presidential candidate and former vice president Joe Biden on their green platforms. Growing up in school in both Greece and Europe and seeing wind turbines at a young age and how gorgeous they are and such a beacon of renewable energy and just such a beacon of hope in my perspective. Elena and I first met at our inaugural Millie Speaks in 2018 and I just fell in love. She is known to many as a friend, a mentor, a guide, and a light. There's no blame or no shame, and I want to make sure that becomes my motto. In times of doubt, I know what to do, and I can have the tools for myself and for other women. She opens up about her experience with sexual assault at Queen's University and the Me Too movement, and how her life's mission is to inspire women to believe in themselves and have confidence. I saw my life change dramatically when I started speaking publicly about what happened to me. She is someone who walks the talk. Take a moment to pause, reflect, and recognize your efforts. Don't ever forget. It's important to recognize that in others as well. She brings women together everywhere she goes. And we're so excited to share this conversation with you. Oh, I'm so happy to talk to you. It's really nice to talk to you. Yeah, so good to hear your voice. So you have so much going on in your life. Thank you again for being here with me today. One of my favorite qualities about you is that you take women wherever you go. You're a major advocate for growth, acceptance, and mentoring. How did that become you? Where did that all start? Well, thank you, Chelsea. That's really kind to say. And at um Growing up in Europe, and I'm half Greek, and I have a large extended Greek family, and there's a lot of women, a lot of very strong, opinionated women. And uh, they had always said, pay it forward or make sure there's women in the room. And actually, when I was a child, I learned quite quickly, they said, whatever you do, it's so good to have people with different backgrounds and different experiences at the table because you get different results. So for example, in Greece, there's between any given day, there's maybe 10 political parties, the extreme left to extreme right, and that's pretty much my family. So I learned quite quickly um, acceptance, respect, and also to make sure you had facts. So we had to give a little, as a child, a little story why we believed in something, but it had to be facts um, behind it. Uh, I also had mentors uh, growing up, and I had three mentors that were men, and they had always said to me to ensure that, to pay it forward, that I would always uh, have women in the room 
And, and just to kind of take a note, if I was the only woman in college or university or, you know, in male spaces, would there be diverse results if a woman was in the room? So that's a little bit of uh, how I've, I've remembered that and I've taken that forward. Oh, wow. Your family sound like wonderful people. When you moved to Canada, did you feel a culture shock? Uh, very much so, actually. And I'm just very lucky to have parents who, you know, pushed back on other norms or North America, which was, you know, very interesting. And from an environmental perspective, growing up in school in both Greece and Europe and seeing wind turbines at a young age and how gorgeous they are and how they just such a beacon of renewable energy and just such a beacon of hope in my perspective. And and there wasn't a lot in Canada and people said, oh, Canada's very uh, green. And I said, sure, it can be more green. <laughs> and, you know, I, I also, there's a lot of strong women in Europe and I realized quickly as a woman using her voice with just a strong voice, I might get pushback and I just really didn't mind. I just kept going forward with that. Well, I'm glad that you didn't mind. <laughs> so do you think living in Europe was what inspired you to care so much about the environment? Yeah, well, I think it was maybe happenstance. You know, with my extended Greek family, many were women and many were not formally educated. Um, many were farmers and some of the smartest people I know and really gave me an appreciation of the environment, uh, where does our food come from, what's, what's in our water, what's in our air, and how it's all connected. So I learned quite quickly how everything was connected, um, learning that, you know, I ate food that wasn't, uh, that was organic before there was an organic label placed on it, you know, and I had uh, my first, I remember two, my parents were pretty strict in Greece with me in Europe. And I remember I wanted to just try American peanut butter as a kid. And uh, and I, I remember seeing the Jippy logo was just calling my name in the American store. I remember trying it at 13 and my parents kind of giggling like um, high school kids at the corner of the store watching me. And I was like, what on earth is going on? So I had, you know, Jiffy peanut butter and it, it tasted very sweet and realized quite quickly I got sick. And my parents asked if I could look at the uh, container of the peanut butter and say, did I recognize what was in this peanut butter? And I saw a slew of chemicals, additives, and, you know, peanut was, I think, the 10th thing down. And, you know, I, I realized quite quickly. So it was like what my family did was set me up in a, in a very good way of, mm-hmm. you know, no, allowing me to have the experiences for myself, but just guiding me on the way. So it's really great to have family that don't uh, dull your shine on curiosity. I think they just allow that, especially as a child. So I, you know, at my age now, I'm, I'm still very curious so about many things. So I had a, an aunt pass away of breast cancer. Um, her name is Rita. She's very close to me. And uh, this is how old I am. My, my parents have this on eight track taping me uh, going to doctors after doctor, um, asking what happened to my aunt because she didn't smoke, she barely drank. If she did, it was wine, red wine. Um, and um, so I wanted to know what was going on. And I couldn't get an answer. And all the doctors were men. And I was like, can I just speak to one woman doctor? And mm-hmm. they said, there's none here. And I said, okay. So I was quickly noticing who was taking up space and who was not mm-hmm. in the room. Wow. 
I'm so sorry about your aunt Elena. That must have been so confusing as a child. I don't think I've ever asked you this or talked to you about this. You were named Toronto's Woman of the Year for designing and implementing wind turbines in Canada, US, and Europe. So I went to Queen's University and um, very proud of my Queen's school. And, um, you know, because I had the European background and was exposed to wind turbines at an early age and just thought they were beautiful. Um, so in downtown Toronto, Lake Ontario, there's, and for those in Canada, you may know the Canadian National Exhibition, um, there's, I always noticed that there was wind and I always noticed that was a place to site a turbine. So I'm, you know, in my early twenties and I was thinking about school and thinking about how we can green up the world, how we can green up Toronto. And so I thought I'd love to have a turbine here. I, I didn't go for the first, it was more of what, how can we put Toronto on the map for even greener things or what can we do here? Mm -hmm. And so I had a team, it was 50% women, uh, people of color, and uh, again, remind, reminded by my aunts as a child that having diverse people at the table will give you diverse results. Yeah. And, and so important to learn from people with different backgrounds, because um, otherwise you're, you're in a room of people that, of yes folks that have the shared same experience, and it's, it's, I find it's boring. It's, let's get some exciting results in. So it was, I don't know if it was naivete or if I was still that determined child, um, but I, I mean, I got laughed at a lot like, and at the names, I mean, I, so many, I've still called names today, but the PG ones are like win girl, win lady, win woman. And they said, you're never going to get this up. And um, as my first project in Toronto, I, I did get the mayor of the city, the prime minister, and I had other, uh, the head of the um, Toronto Hydro and Ontario Hydro in the room. And, you know, they said, if you get the funding and get someone to give, give a turbine and what we can do, and it's great. So I, I got the studies done. I did the environmental impact statements and it was really, everything was done and I just kept going. And um, I think because maybe people saw that I was just so passionate about it with facts, I just started to do this and um, the team was excited and um, so it, it ended up happening. And I mean, through that, I learned a lot about uh, projects and, you know, do's and don'ts. And I learned a lot about nimbyism. And that was something that, that was an important thing, which for those who don't know, nimbyism is not in my backyard. So, which happens quite a lot, right? So it's, Elena, we love the idea of a wind turbine, but we just don't want to be close to it. Mm -hmm. And so that's when community studies happened. And that's where we had open town halls, public meetings, to actually hear from the people who could be benefiting from the wind turbine, meaning they would actually get their hydro paid for and they'd be able to. So this, you know, with this wind turbine stands over a hundred meters tall and uh, took 256 homes off the grid and was the first urban turbine in North America. And it was the first feed and tariff program, meaning if you had extra energy, you could actually feed it back into the grid and get a refund on that. So I thought, hey, this is easy. This is wonderful. And sure, there's a couple knocks, but um, realizing as I look back today, I'm quickly reminded how difficult that it's, you know, sometimes you just have the magic in the room and it happens, mm -hmm. but um, never to forget the magic and to keep on pressing on as one would say. That's, that's amazing. And going back to the story about your aunt, and I'm so sorry about your loss. Mm -hmm. and Thank you. 
not seeing women in the room, and I'm sure that was a similar situation with this, how did you get people to follow your vision? Mm, that's a very good question, Chelsea, because there were those who thought, oh my goodness, this is never going to happen. This is ridiculous. Like, yes, there was those. So it was kind of taking people on who were interested in this or wanted to learn about renewable energy and wanted to help have this project go on. I think it's from that a lot of the people I've worked with have gone on to other wind campaigns, environmental campaigns, and sometimes political campaigns as well. That's where I also saw the lack of um, intersection between politics and science, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because still today, my career, I'm either on a, you know environmental campaign or a political campaign. Interesting to note that it's usually women who ask, how do I go from one to the other? Right. It's not the men. <laughs> right. So even when I finished that wind turbine, for example, um, the project was, was going underway. Uh, a gentleman approached me and said that he was going to run for mayor of Toronto. And I said, oh, that's great. Do you need um, some, someone to help with a climate change policy? And he said, no, I'd like you to run my campaign. Wow. And I thought, well, the first thing I said was, well, you know, I don't have a political background. I don't have a political science background. And he said, did I ask for one? And I said, actually, no, you did not. And he said, look, Elena, you, you just ran an environmental campaign. It's similar to one in politics. And maybe if you like the platform or can improve it, um, I'd love to have you run the campaign. So I, I was kind of, uh, you know, scratching my chin at the point, and I went to my mentors, three men, and uh, they said, you know, Elena, they laughed at first because they said, okay, so learn this lesson. You know, men would just go for it, you know, mm-hmm. fake it till you make it, that type of thing. Um, but, you know, women feel that they have to be 100% qualified for the gig or job. Right. And they said, you know, we'll help you. And two of them were friends, you know, friends of Pierre Trudeau and worked with him, but they said, you know, it's similar. We can help you learn that. And sure, you can take political science classes, but you don't have to have a degree in political science if you don't want to. And let's see if it works. So learning quickly how men view the word and opportunities and women view the world and opportunities, I learned quite early on in my uh, experience, my work experience. If you're okay to talk about it, I would love to talk about your experience with the Me Too movement? Sure. So for me, I mean, I, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. I'm, I've been sexually assaulted numerous times, and there was shame around that, absolutely. And uh, I mean, my university, I was sexually assaulted on campus, and uh, it was so difficult for me. Yeah, I know, I know this is a big ask because it's, you know, opening up a wound, but I wonder if you would mind telling a little bit about your experience at Queen's. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, Queen's was my first choice. I I remember from high school that uh, a lot of my university, or high school rather, didn't go to Queen's. I was thinking of, you know, professional soccer league in the U.S. and or for soccer scholarships. And um, I decided to choose Queen's. And, you know, I quickly, there was... um, I chose Queens as well because they don't have the Greek system. And so I thought, but there's things that happen. You know, there's a lot of drinking. There's other things that happen. But um, I remember um, for me, what happened, my story is that uh, I got mono the second year, which is very typical for students. I mean, you're overwhelmed, exhausted. And I had already been harassed enough 
And, um, but I came back to Queens and uh, my friends, my housemates uh, decided to throw a party for me. And um, I went to that and I went to another party. And um, unfortunately that's where my memory of that evening ends. I mean, there was, my friends were there and there was, uh, I remember drinking and then, you know, the mind is an, an amazing tool because I can't, you know, can't remember what happened that night. I do remember the next morning waking up naked with a sheet over me and seeing blood and cuts and being very out of it, um, knowing that I had been drugged, not sure what drugs were in my system, but just in a very in a fog. And I remember realizing uh, that I needed to get out of there quickly and saw blood beside somebody else, a friend that I knew and had to get out and uh, didn't care. I just took the sheets and kind of like a caftan, just tied it around me and went out to the middle of the street and you know called 911. And um, I remember going to the hospital. I remember things about the hospital when I came to of you know, just some talk about survivors. And at that point, I, I had no idea that I was even assaulted, right? I just remember hurting and I, I remember going to the washroom um, and uh, I remembered everything hurt. And, uh, you know, there's I'm, some doctors have better bedside manners than others and some are tired. And But uh, I remember doctors and nurses talking about that. And I was going in and out of consciousness and I heard them say, yes, that's another sexual assault survivor. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're talking about me. And, and um, you know, I had marks on my face and marks on my body. And uh, I, as I came to, and I thought, oh my goodness, I got to talk to my parents. What am I going to say? And I thought, okay, um, you can noticeably see that there was marks on my face and uh, glass and other things. So I had made sure that I had to come up with something because I didn't want to scare them too much. So I called my mom and, and then I, uh, my dad and I have always had a very close bond. And when my dad heard my voice, he knew something was off. And I said, you know, my appendix broke and I fell onto a floor and some glass and things like that. So you know, I'm not in the best shape. Um, but uh, you know, years later, I knew he knew that day that um, I was assaulted. Um, so, so there it goes. I, you know, I, I tried to come back to Queens and finish one of my degrees and I just couldn't. So, and that's the trap. A lot of students, especially a lot of women who are assaulted on campus, uh, don't finish their school and they start to work or they, you know, I mean, you just survived a trauma. Why would you want to go back to the place of the trauma? Um, so, you know, the police, I mean, I did all the police reports and all of that as well. And, you know, it's amazing what survivors and thrivers can do. I, I try to get back to school and then I had a job and then I thought, you know, I can't do all of this. So certain things I need to put on hold. But I did have, when I went back to Queens, I remember, you know, seeing students just kind of laughing and playing innocently. And I was like, well, I three men that assaulted me don't get to take that away from me. They don't get to take that child away from me or that idealistic student. So what can I do here to change? And what can I do for me? Um, 
So that was quick learning on my part of, I didn't, and I know that again, that's privilege and luck and, you know, did people believe me because I was a woman, did people, a white woman, um, you know, I didn't have too many people not believing me, which I know is not the story for many. Um, I wasn't ashamed, um, but it's, I also knew it was going to be a long road ahead for me. You know? And I quickly went into, I asked my family physician, who's still my family physician today in Canada, and said, you know, I need to get to some therapy because I know some, a lot of things are going to come out that I just don't even know yet. And uh, I found my ther- first therapist after 35 tries because each therapist prior to that said, oh, you're a lovely, beautiful young woman. You've got a great life ahead of you. Here's some antidepressants and you'll be right. fine. And, and I was like, no, that's not oh, how this is going to happen. Yeah. And so the, the therapist that I ended up taking and he and my doctor was quite miffed as well. He said, I'm really sorry, Elena. Now that's not, I'm really sorry about this. Try this gentleman. And I thought, oh man, really? So um, when I went to his office on St. Clair Avenue, yes, and it was gorgeous. It was, um, he is a, was, was, he's passed away now, but he was a German man married to a woman from Kenya and was absolutely gorgeous wife. And there was all this African art and it just kind of drew me in, great music. And he said to me, he said, so what number am I? And I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean what number? And he said, I know I'm not your first choice for a therapist. <laughs> I said, no, no, you're not. You're number 35. <laughs> and he said, good God, yeah. 35. And I said, yeah, it's not a favorite number of mine. And um, I'm not 35 years old. So, And he said, look, um, I'm really sorry about that. You don't deserve that. Um, so what we, we're going to do here, if you if you decide to choose me, is we're not going to talk about meds. If you need that, we can talk about that with your other physician, and the three of us can talk. But I think this is if this is a safe space for you, you feel comfortable, um, that's how I'd like to have our conversations. And, you know, there's trauma takes time to understand and process, and um, you don't have to process everything right away. And I yeah, I laughed and then I said, well, you know, I'm type A. He goes, oh, I get that. Oh, I get that. But, you know, if you're here, I don't want you worrying about how you're going to get home or, you know, it's, can we just have conversations about who you are and where you're going to get forward? And he said, you know, why is therapy so important to you? And I said, because things are going to come up that I don't know how to handle. And this is also has nothing to do with me. And, um, there's no blame or no shame, and I want to make sure that becomes my motto. And I really continue to believe in myself. And in times of doubt, I know where, what to do, and I can have the tools for myself and for other women. Wow. So that was an amazing learning experience. And yeah, I think if I can help one woman who's been sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, and say, you know what, me too, and you don't deserve it. and please, it wasn't your fault. Because I see so much, so many women not return to school or not have, you know, the therapy. And there's there's resources that are free and they're available. So there's accessibility. So that's pretty much why, too, I became a commissioner was to promote women in science and politics, uh, to get more women in boardrooms, but also as a survivor to know that there's resources out there for whatever your background is and wherever you are in your journey of healing because i think that's 
you know, we're all healing wounds, right? So, um, but to do that, to think that life is so beautiful for everyone, what that's, you know, maybe that's my optimistic, naive look at the time, but it's also a privilege as a white woman. And I, if I can help anyone else out there, you know, that's, that is my journey. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm tearing up listening to you because you're such a gracious and graceful person who, you know, never deserves to feel, feel that. So. I mean, the odds of me surviving what happened to me are, are very slim to none. I think about, you know, friends and women I know who didn't make it and friends who passed away and, you know, trauma looks different to many different people. So I guess it, it made me more determined to, you know, what I, I wanted a career in science. I wanted a career in politics. I, I, that's, I do want that. And no one, the only person that gets to take that away is myself if I choose a different path. So that's, that's uh, I guess, maybe my determination and to help other women and others how to hold space for survivors. And, you know, as someone, especially as a Canadian in the U.S., I see those who don't have access. So how can I make that more accessible for others? And the men from Queens are now in jail. Yes, yes, yes. Just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, the three of them. Yeah, one was a friend of an ex-boyfriend. Wow. What can we be doing to end rape culture? I believe one of your first initiatives was to bring more light into the parks or the campuses. That's that's exactly that's exactly right. That's why I became a commissioner. That's right. I was walking at night with my husband and noticed the lack of lighting. And because I engineer and he's an architect, and we'd always look at lighting and lack thereof, and um, spaces and places. And that's kind of what an architect looks at public spaces. And I said, you know, I would not feel comfortable running here. And so that's when I had brought it to gentleman. He said and said. You know, I'd like to see more lighting in the downtown on the pier, and um, you know that's exactly that's an initiative that I started. And that I didn't tell him reasons why. I just said, you know, I, I did say I didn't find it safe for women, and I'm sure if I feel that, then many others feel the same. From talking to you before, I I understand that it's your goal to create more jobs for women within science. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that 28 percent, I think are women mm -hmm. and you want to continue increasing that number right what what right. are you doing to achieve this goal uh i thought maybe i could get up to 50 percent by 50 but you know Aww. lofty goals are always good <sighs> how i'm doing it too is like speaking to schools and speaking to young girls it's also what girls think of scientists right and that you're not just in the lab Right. Although these days it's very important working on vaccines, et cetera. But you're there's so much more that you can do. So it's finding out what is your you know, what are you passionate? Are you passionate about the environment? Are you passionate about environmental science? There's some classes to get you interested in that. So to move the needle, I've you know, I've created almost you know, half a million green jobs. I know. And that's from solar installers, wind installers. That's uh, in Texas, we call them wind cowboys, cowboy turbines. So uh, of course, we're going to call them cowboys in Texas. And, you know, so marketing is a big part of that, you know, because the more C-suite or the more CEOs I speak to as a business owner myself, I, I think it resonates when you have different voices in the room or on your team, you're going to get different diverse results. And it's always that way. So when I join a political candidates team or I make sure that I bring other women with me and you know that's a promise I made to my mentors once I'm in boardroom meetings that 
to smash the glass ceiling is that I make sure the door is held open for the next uh, generation to come in. Or for women who just at my age who um, aren't sure how to go forward. So I'm a big champion of women and uh, women in science and politics. And, you know, I'm proud to say that I looked at half half a million million jobs I've created, 60% were filled by women. Yeah, So amazing. I'm very proud of that. As you should be. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, some women don't have the same freedom and the same opportunity as yes. women like you and me. And right. you are that beacon of hope for girls, you know, who might not be allowed to get into sciences or, you know, might have mm. to stay home or, you know, mm. many different life choices behind that. But you're just so wonderful and graceful and um, doing many things that many women would never think they could do. You know, there's a quote, a secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. And uh, that's a lot, you know, I don't know where that's come from in me, but it's, it's always moving forward. And I know that's, if I can help others move forward on their journeys um, to get unstuck, whatever that looks like, you know, that's, that's something I really hope that happens for, for everyone, regardless of your upbringing, your background, your experiences, um, to continue to move forward. I'm just, you know, I'm hopeful again, though, you know, I'm, I'm, I recognize my privilege as a white woman, right? Especially a white woman in the U S privilege becomes responsibility. And that is to bring others, especially women of color with me and, you know, to make sure when I'm speaking on panels that if there's not a woman of color on the panel that I ask is there have has it have them been asked has and if they haven't been asked you know depending on if it's I'm speaking about politics or science or talking about survivors of sexual assault to make sure I, I do my research and have someone in the wings waiting mm-hmm. if that's possible what advice would you give younger girls starting out or looking to transition similar to the advice that you received mm. So I think that for women who are wanting to change careers, and I think this is at a time right now too where we're at, a lot of people are working remotely and I think it's a time to try some classes, some online classes, but not be afraid to mentor, not uh, to get mentors too. And, And also, you know, the importance of recognition of our work and, um, never to underestimate the power of recognition. Yes. I mean, you know, I, finished my wind turbine information. I finished the project and I took a flight to Greece to see some family. And on my way back, I went through Italy and I took an Alitalia flight. And, you know, there was a uh, World Cup soccer was going on and you know, I played professional soccer as my dad and I uh, wanted to know what the score was. And I was annoying. I think well, I'm sure I was just annoying the flight attendant who said I wasn't, but said, you know, how can I what can I do? And I said, I just want to know the score. And she said, you know, the pilots are curious. Who's this woman who's interested in the score of a soccer game? And uh, so I went through the cockpit and uh, there was a plume of smoke. They were smoking. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no judgment. Um, and I had said, uh, you know, what's the score? And we talked about soccer and, and I said, oh, I'm getting my pilot's license. And they said, oh, that's great. What's it like flying into Toronto? And I said, or they said rather, uh, it's, it's quite easy. They were in their broken English, my broken Italian. I said, you know, there's this wind turbine that we just have to watch. And I took a pause and I, and they looked at me and they said, oh, you know something about this wind thing. 
And I and I said, uh, yeah, it was my it was an idea that. Uh, and they said, no, 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 this is yours, right? This is something you can't just take a moment to reflect on it. Not too long, but take a moment to. We're recognizing it. We talk about it all the time up here as pilots, and um, it's a beautiful thing that it's you've achieved something so young in your career. So remember to take a moment to pause, reflect, and recognize your efforts and move on, but don't ever forget, you know, it's important to recognize that in others as well. So back to your question with women who are looking at their careers or ask their, them the stories of where they are, why they are today. And if someone is in you know, politics or wants to get into politics, ask for mentors or go onto LinkedIn or ask friends or friends and never be afraid. I mean, the worst thing is something someone could say, no, or I don't have the time. And really, if that's the worst thing, why aren't we doing it more? Yeah, I love that. Very good question. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your experience as a Canadian navigating mm. and leading U.S. politics. How did that How did that happen? How did you first get into U.S. politics? Well, that's a good question. So after the WIN project and working in Canadian politics, I had some friends in L.A. and I was doing some work here in L.A., for um, Aveda, which is a, a natural company for hair and things like that. So I did some um, interesting projects uh, as, as a model. And I was told there were a lot of women in science in, in uh, LA. And I thought, really? And I, you know, I just, I thought I, LA to me was just some place I went surfing. And, you know, I just had this very uh, myopic view of what California was. And I was working at a bipartisan lobbying firm in downtown LA. And so there were, there was people who were Democrats, Republicans, independents, and, you know, got along well. And I, I guess just asking, right. And I think that's kind of the fearlessness was, you know, I asked people, I mean, I worked in DC, just asking people how I could, with my background in uh, Canadian politics, which then went to New York and then DC and meeting people, um, going to conventions. So I think it was just me keeping to ask, you know, and I I have um, some friends I've known for a long time, like Bob Ray is a great friend and uh, I'm very proud of his new appointment. And I knew him back back in the 90s, that was so long ago, but he, he was always someone who would say, oh, I, I'm at this law firm, I think you should connect with this lawyer who's doing this. And so it was always uh, asking people, never being afraid to shy of, and um, the ability to build up my experience. And uh, so with my New York, DC, and LA, I, I also noticed that at the bipartisan law firm in LA, there weren't any men, women. So that's where I also was like, okay, where are the women here again? Right. You know, so it was the intersection again of science and politics because um, I realized that a lot of a lot of uh, politicians don't have a science background. So how I could create a platform that was in layman's terms and how people could easily explain climate change without getting into the four hundred parts per million or you know eyes people would, you know, lose an audience in two seconds type of thing. So how how to bring people in and how to kind of realize whether it's on climate change, whether it's privilege, and just be able to have these conversations and dialogue, which, um, again, goes back to my upbringing of, you know, 13 aunts and uncles at a big table with eating 
different kinds of food with different opinions, but, you know, being able to respect and hear what everyone has to say. And I think that's where the dialogue continues. And that's, I think it's so important to continue having a dialogue. I mean, were you nervous entering the room as this, you know, blonde bombshell Canadian in a room full of men to probably be underestimated? You know, because oh, oh, men are oh. constantly, I mean, I don't want to say that on record, but yeah, yeah, um, yes. that must have been like, you know, a little intimidating. Oh, oh, yeah. You just uh, evoked a memory of mine that I had when I worked on a school bond project and I was the most senior sustainability director and I was in charge of hundreds of millions of dollars. So as a sustainability director and, you know, I remember walking in and the way the room in downtown LA was, it was a hundred people and it was all eyes on me. So that, I mean, back then I had a Blackberry yeah. and I was just pretending pretending to text no one. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, you know, sweating and I went down and I excused myself to go to the washroom and just, you know, take a couple of deep breaths, which I think are so important on many things and just, you know, do some positive affirmations and, you know, just, I've got this, I've got this and to go back. But, uh, oh yes, I, I mean, I was, I've been nervous. Oh, very nervous. You work with very high profile politicians. I don't know if we can say who on here, but um, you know, we can say, I think, presidential candidates. Yeah. I know you do advise them on their renewable energy policy. Yes. Do you also bring forward anything to do with safety for women, rape culture, the Me Too movement? Yes. So there's, you know, still campaign life um, going on the road. I mean, it's very different. You know, in the U.S., this is going to be the first time there's the Democratic National Convention is going to be virtual. So it's a very different feeling, you know. In the U.S. right now, I didn't want to be labeled, oh, that's Elena, the scientist who's also the rape survivor. And I thought, you know, why why not? More and more candidates were sexual assault survivors. And this is exactly the reason I became a commissioner, was to make Santa Monica a safer place for uh, women and girls. And it's everything to do with being a sexual assault survivor. And so sometimes at first I was like, do I put that on a cover letter about who I am? And then I thought, you know, yes, I do, you know, and that's, and it's, it's very telling and some campaigns will help and excited to have me on board and some I will not. And, you know, I'm not ashamed of that, of that my past, because that again had nothing to do with me. And that's again, I think leading the way as someone, uh, when, when I'm hiring younger people as well in different generations is that if I lead with, I'm a survivor, they, they know that I'm going to be open to speaking about things, you know, as opposed to hiding things. What advice would you give for other survivors who might be listening to you speaking right now? Sure. Sure. So I think for me personally, um, I saw my life change dramatically when I started speaking publicly about, what happened to me? I mean, if you, depending on who your your parents, if your family, your chosen family, to have conversations with them. I mean, there's so much healing, and our body holds on to trauma. And I remember this one situation when I went back to Queens to talk about a degree that I needed to get, and I went with my father, and we we're it's like an out of body experience when I they started talking about what happened to me and. You know, I couldn't finish a, one of the classes because I needed to be on campus and I didn't want to. Um, I couldn't, well, I wanted to, I just couldn't. And uh, so I thought I had a speech already. And I remember with my dad in the room and 
just seeing the dean and the body of Queen's University, and I just, I just said, you know, I, I just wanted to go to school, and uh, it was hard um, having my dad in the room mm-hmm. because I felt I had um, somehow disappointed him, and. Uh, so I, I started to cry immensely, and it was this this cry of of um, of trauma leaving my body. Actually, what I've learned, and so when I went into a, another room, my dad and I talked, and uh, he said, "You know, Lena, this is not your fault, and I'm so sorry. I couldn't help you." And uh, I guess my thing in saying this was. Um, getting, uh, keeping silent, keeping secret is, is not healthy. Um, I, I mean, that day, I remember how I got my degree and, and Queens and it was just so much healing for everyone and, uh, and for my body, you know, I just, I started trauma manifests in different ways. So I think for survivors, depending on where you are and I know now with COVID that many survivors are home and maybe their home is not safe for them. Unfortunately, sexual violence and domestic violence have gone up during COVID. And that's, I don't know if that's really spoken about. Every, every survivor's journey is different. Um, for me, I, I, speaking publicly was so healing in my, for me, um, for my family and for, to find pure joy. But it was quite a while before you talked openly about it, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. And there's there's typical things. Like, I mean, I am a natural blonde, maybe a sandy blonde, but I, you know, I dyed my hair black. I wore makeup, a lot of makeup. And, you know, there's th- I just didn't want to be seen mm-hmm. or I wanted to be seen as someone different. Right. And so, yes, it was years, years after to speak, to speak publicly because there was... There was shame, and I, I hadn't tapped into that bit for me. And I, you know, I, I didn't tell my parents because, my, my dad, the truth, because I thought, yeah, they somehow would think less of me, which, so for any survivor, I would say, you know, you don't, you know, I, I understand those feelings very well, and I, I hear you, and I, I support you, whatever that journey looks like for you. But there's, there is healing, and there are resources available if you're in a relationship that your partner does not believe you or does not support you, um, that's not the relationship for you. A person in a relationship that's healthy will hear all of you and accept all of you and understand that trauma happens to you, not because of you. Oh, wish I could give you a big hug right now. <laughs> We've talked about how sometimes fear is the root of why we don't do something, why we don't raise our hand, why we don't feel confident to share an opinion or a joke (laughs) or a life experience. How do you move through that fear? Sure. You know, there's gratitude practices and there's affirmations. There's positive affirmations in the morning. And at first, I think I thought it was a very like an Oprah-like, I don't need to do this. Uh, I don't know if it really works, but there is a science to positive affirmations to set your day. And even if it's um, waking up a half hour earlier uh, before working out and it's just sitting in silence, or maybe it's the end of your day for you or whomever, and it's, 
it's actually writing things you're grateful for. What are your superpowers and your affirmation? And it, it really sets in the morning, it sets the tone for the day. And there's been the science of well-being back to that class at Yale. There's a lot of studies about how that really does work. And, you know, um, besides working out, listening to music and, you know, saying you are, but it's, if you ever felt, you know, get filled with doubt, sometimes I will work out or I will, you know, go for, you know, run wearing a mask or I'll go for a bike ride, but, you know, there's, and listen to empowering things because things will change. And I think, you know, to find strength within, and if you're, you're having an off day, I think to reach out to friends or reach out to colleagues or people who trust. I think there's the imposter syndrome, which women have a lot more than men. And not all, I will say, but I think it's, we just need to take up space and be all right with that. And it's, it's, a, it's a daily practice, I would say. I guess to round up our call, what advice would you give women wanting to enter into a career in STEM? So I think that with women, it's interesting because women who I've mentored have always said, you know, I only have a master's or I only have this or I only have that. Like, get the word I only out of your system, right? right? You know, it's you don't need to have five degrees to do that. And if there's something you want to get into STEM or STEAM or you want to be um, a woman in politics, um, you know, it's ask, find people on LinkedIn or people in your your spheres who have that career that you'd like to emulate. Why not? Don't hesitate to contact people. More people are open than you think they would be. Yep. And the worst they can say is no. I mean, hopefully they don't, but that's not so scary. And I think we build it up to be very intimidating. Right. You probably have your resume out to maybe 20 people. Maybe one person says yes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's so that's, you know, 19 no's or 100 no's. It's just keep trying. You know, you can use social media for good. I strongly believe that. Um, you know, check out people's profiles you like. Check out what they're doing, where they're speaking, or, you know, use certain tags, women's conferences, and see if, you know, if you're a student or if, you, if you've if you lost your job. Like, I, you know, I, I think it's your attitude first, you know. Be a Wonder Woman or be a superhero with your energy and use your energy to uplift people. I love to know, what are your hopes and your dreams? Yes. Well, so I've been advising on, uh, with regards to Joe Biden. And I, as a Democrat, uh, I really hope for a good result in November and getting people out to vote. But it's also never taking one's vote for granted or anyone's vote for granted. So it's what that there's a policy or that there's a uh, platform for people to get involved in and that get people excited about. It's really hard too, you know, because people on the left or the right and um, but, you know, I, I have friends who are Republicans. They're not Trump supporters, but, um, you know, who I talk to. And it's, I think, again, goes back to the dialogue of conversations. So of let's have more conversation about where you come from and kind of respecting that. So I'm excited to work on the campaign and see where it goes and finding joy oh where gosh. it is. It's a lot of fun. That's so exciting. Oh, Alina, I can't thank you enough for making the time to talk with me. <laughs> Thank you so much, and good luck with the election. We'll be watching. Uh, It's been a pleasure, Chelsea. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this incredible conversation with Elena Christopoulos. And thank you for listening to the Millie Podcast. Please join me back here in two weeks' time for our next conversation with social enterprise co-founders Jacqueline Sophia and Nora Sharap of City Soap. 
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please hit subscribe, share with your friends, and visit us at millie.ca.